0: at paypal.me forward slash pod. the link to both of those can also be found in the show notes finally please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform now on to the next topic
1: no worries good to see you again sean
2: yeah george it's nice to see you zach we're recording now uh yeah zach i got to meet george at the, the carnivore convention you. we had carnivore kind of amber put on and uh I had seen one of his presentations, oh, probably about a year ago, I watched a video that you did, I think it was at Ancestral Health, and talking about plant evolution. And your background, if I'm not mistaken, you do kind of plant evolutionary biology, is that more or less? Or what is the exact uh, title?
1: Yes, I am. I'm a plant evolutionary biologist. So um, early in my career, I spent a lot of time in the tropics, Central and South America, looking for new species of plants and studying plant evolution, doing field work. And then in more recent years, I've, I've done a lot of research on Texas plants and done some writing on that. And, um, and then shifting over into evolution and human health, kind of with the plant link there, because of all the plant toxins I'm particularly interested in Um, plant toxins, plant chemical defense.
2: Yeah, George, let me, um, because I I remember I I took a botany class in college, and that's about it for me. I mean, we were learning about the monocots and the dicots and the monocots were older and stuff like that and, you know, some of the basic stuff. But, I mean, certainly, um, just as a general, um, plants, let's talk about the the evolution of plants because plants have been around the earth a hell of a lot longer than we have, you know, as, as humans and certainly more than mammals and other animals. Let's maybe go back from the beginning and kind of talk about that, and then we can kind of see where we're at now.
1: Okay. So, you know, we actually have fossil evidence of plants being damaged by animals as far back as 400 million years. So, this has been a a war between plants and animals for a very long time, and plants have gotten quite good at protecting themselves. Um, you know, there are literally tens of thousands of plant compounds that plants use in this, in this ongoing war. It's like a never ending war between plants and animals. And I like to think of it as an arms race. Plants will evolve a way to protect themselves from an animal or a pathogen, or you know it could be a fungus, it could be a bacterium, and those kinds of pathogens, or from some kind of animal that actually eats the plant, an herbivore. And then the herbivore will evolve a defense. Animals evolve ways to get around these chemical defenses. And so then the plant will evolve another chemical defense. And so it's, it's kind of this back and forth. It's like when you think of um, a little Thompson's gazelle on the savanna and a cheetah, well, they have each gotten faster and faster and faster. Well, the same is with um, plants and animals. And plants have gotten very good at defending themselves chemically. And in fact, some plants have several dozen different chemical defenses.
2: And this, pro, I mean, this is obviously we're talking a period over millions of years, where these evolutions occurs. I mean, cheetahs didn't get faster over a period of a few hundred years. I mean, it was, right. it, was it was through you know hundreds of thousands of years of, of natural selection. The faster animal is going to live longer or, or be less likely to be eaten from the gazelle side, and the faster cheetah is going to likely get to the gazelle from the, from the. Uh, cheetah side, and then these, you know, and so, but plants did not initially evolve these these defense systems to deal with mammals, right? I mean, they started out with a different, different set of uh, requirements.
1: Absolutely. So, in fact, most of the toxins that probably bother humans, most of the plant chemical defenses that bother humans, probably evolved either as an insect, an anti-insect defense, or a pathogen thing, literally um, against, of, a- fungus or bacterium. So, for example, um, some of the lectins, they are wonderful antifungal chemicals. And yeah, it had nothing to do with humans and probably nothing to do with any mammal, but because we're so similar at the chemical level, uh, at the cellular level, to um, all these other creatures, then something that affects one of them affects us. Let me use an analogy. If you get some kind of really toxic insecticide to spray on insects in someone's house. Those things actually act as neurotoxins on the insects, but they can poison people. People can get a severe case of uh, uh, this kind of neurotoxin. This is a synthetic thing, but the same thing applies at the um, the plant level. Uh, Plant may have evolved it to affect an insect or a fungus or even a bacterium, but since our cells are similar, it affects us.
2: Yeah, I mean that's certainly uh, you know it makes sense. Now, of course, the 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 thought will be you know well, obviously it's dose dependent, and uh, you know, and as you said, we've developed as humans and other mammals, we've developed you know robust uh, systems to deal with toxins. I mean, we, we 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 can't avoid toxins day and day. I mean, just breathing our air is full of toxic materials. You know, if you look at pollution, we have you know our liver has enzymes to to deal with those things, and so. What? So let's just talk about because most, if I go outside and start randomly eating plants, uh, just willy nilly and don't care, I'm gonna I'm gonna get pretty sick. And you know, like I said, what what percentage of plants in the world have some sort of toxin in them that are that will make humans acutely sick?
1: I can't tell you that. I don't know because for one thing, we haven't tested most plants. So, you know, if you actually look at where most of the world's plants are a very large percentage of them are in rainforest, and we simply haven't tested. Many of them haven't even been named, so I don't know what percentage are poisons, but I do know that um, it would be a very bad thing to do just to go out and start eating things um, without knowing, and there are certain plants that are particularly bad. For example, in the northern hemisphere, there are several plants that eating just a couple of bites is enough to um, poison a person, and there are, there are plants, um, we have native plants here in Texas that literally a few seeds will um, potentially cause death. There's a plant called the angel's trumpet. It's in the nightshade family or the Solanaceae. And um, kids here in Texas have died trying to take a trip using these um, angel trumpet seeds. The, the difference between the hallucinogenic dose and the fatal dose is very small. And so it's, um, you know, these things literally cause death in some cases. So, and when you just go out and, and eat something, um, there are certain, there's kind of a general rule of thumb. Never taste anything in the carrot family, the carrot or parsley family. That, that's a big family of plants called the, um, the APACE, and it includes celery, parsley, cilantro, things like that, some of which, you know, people eat with no problem. But some of the deadliest plants are in that family. So botanists will tell you, don't taste anything in that family. And also don't taste anything with a milky or colored latex. Um, some plants have these uh, pretty toxic materials in a latex and some plants actually will, you break a piece of the plant and they'll ooze out a, a reddish or a
0: whitish colored material. And that's often full of plant defense chemicals. Hey, George. is. Uh... One of the reasons why some of these plants uh, seem to be at least edible in the short term for, for humans, is that because we've more or less bred out a lot of the toxins that could have historically caused them to be more poisonous? Or is it just one of those things that throughout years and years of trial and error, we eventually figured out, okay, this isn't going to kill me right away and, and maybe can be part of a part of our nutrition? So that's a really good question, Zach. Um,
1: The answer is all of those things. So, for example, native peoples often, you know, would try small amounts of things, and this goes back to the dose, try small amounts, and they'd try a bit more. And if they find out that something is toxic, they often have some way of of, uh, removing the toxin. On the other hand, once agriculture began, people actually started doing artificial selection and choosing uh, for the next generation those plants that had fewer of certain obvious bad tasting things. The problem is, sometimes we can be tricked just because something doesn't taste bad doesn't mean it's gonna be good for us, particularly when we eat a lot of it. This is one of the things where people really get in trouble. And globally, this is a huge problem. People people often don't realize that there's a lot of serious malnutrition globally because of the particular kinds of plants that people eat. A paper done a few years ago on um, India, malnutrition in India, and a very large percentage, something close to 40% of kids have some growth stunting because of zinc deficiency. And this is because of eating a very high grain diet, but not very much in the way of animal products. And so if you eat a very high grain diet, there are compounds in there called Phytates and they bind minerals. So zinc, iron, um, calcium, magnesium, and other minerals. And so zinc deficiency is crucial because we have, you know, you and I have something like 300 enzymes that utilize zinc. And if if our enzymes aren't functioning properly, we're not gonna grow properly. And you see the same things in Guatemala. Research has been done, and I've spent a lot of time in Guatemala, In the mountains there, isolated areas of Mayan-speaking people, they're very, very poor, and a lot of the people get their main nutrition from corn tortillas. And so, again, you have phytates in that, zinc gets bound up, the people have very little access to animal products, they're extremely poor, and if they were getting some zinc from animal products, then having the corn tortillas wouldn't keep them from having zinc deficiency. But in the absence of that, the kids often are stunted. And so, very much shorter than they would have been otherwise.
2: Yeah, we see that, I mean, not uncommonly. We're aware of things like oxalates, and, 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 and as you point out, uh, phytic acid or phytates and, and even fiber will often lead to difficulty in, in absorbing certain minerals, zinc being one, magnesium, calcium, iron being some, some other important ones. Um, what, let me ask you about the. Um, you know, what, what, what role does phytic acid play for the plant's defense? Why do they make that? I mean, you know, I mean, we're not eating these things for our benefit. What is the reason that a plant has lectins in the first place? Why do they have phytates in the first place? What is it doing to help or benefit the plant? Okay, so um, plants often, the, the
1: biochemicals, the secondary chemicals in plants often do more than one thing. So in plants, phytates are important as a phosphorus storage. Um, molecule. And so, but they can also do something else. In this case, they bind to a variety of minerals. And so um, the, the molecule may have evolved and be in high levels in plants for one thing, but then have a very detrimental effect in another. Um, the same thing, um, you know, lectins, in the case of lectins, I think they're simply a defense chemical because they're so effective. Um, they're, depending on the particular lectin, they can be very, very toxic. Just a few uncooked, say, kidney beans um, can poison a person, and that's, that's well known. And some other lectins uh, are also quite toxic. Wheat germ agglutinin is a toxic lectin. So these are probably, they're probably actually defense chemicals. In the case of oxalates, they're interesting molecules or interesting compounds because they defend plants in more than one way. So there's a family of plants called the Araceae, the jack in the pulpit. And everybody knows them because probably the most common house plant in the US is a thing called philodendron. And there's another plant that's very widely used called Diffenbachia or dumb cane, D-U-M-B, dumb cane. And it got that name because if somebody eats that, there are enough of these calcium oxalate crystals. They're like little needles. And they're, they're literally needle-shaped, and they're called raphids. And they will actually puncture cell membranes and cause so much damage in the throat that it, people lose their voice and they can't talk, hence the word dumb. And those compounds, there's so much of them in certain plants in that family that simply collecting the plants using for scientific purposes, if you get the sap on your hands, you can have a very, very bad reaction. You don't even have to ingest this stuff. This is just, you know, externally. I had a good friend who's another botanist and he was collecting some of these in Central America and had a terrible reaction due to damage of these crystals. So that's one way that oxalates affect us, but you've had other people on the show and talked about oxalates, but they can also, um, deposit in deposit in various organs and do all kinds of other things. So at one level, they f- serve as a physical defense. At another level, they're serving as a chemical defense in the plant.
2: How do you I mean? We see different concentrations of, of some of these, you know, plant toxins in different parts of the plant itself. I mean, the plant is composed of you know multiple parts, you know, roots, stems, leaves, fruits. You know, uh, how does how is that typically distributed, and and how does it because we eat, you know obviously there's there's a lot of people out. Well, let me go. Let me ask you another question first. Um, why can't we just go out and eat grass? I mean, what's, what's in grass that keeps us from eating? I mean, it's like any other plant compound. It's got some protein, it's got some fiber, it's got some carbohydrate in there. What are the things that prevent us from saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to just go out and munch grass like the cows? Why can't we do that, and, and, and yet cows can't?
1: Well, we don't have, for one thing, we don't have the four stomachs. So we can't break down all that cellulose. So basically, there's so much non-nutritive tissue there that for us to get nutrition from grass, we would have to eat tremendous amounts and that would do all kinds of other bad things to our digestive tract. So we're simply, we're not equipped to break down all of this indigestible fiber and indigestible uh, structural material. Grass is, that's one of the ways plants defend themselves by the way, they make themselves so poor in nutrients that they're not worth eating for many creatures. You and I are not gonna get nutrition from those things. If we were, um, you know, if we were a creature that had, uh, very large bacterial colonies in our body, whether it's, um, cows with multiple stomachs or horses with a, a very large, um, lower gut organ that has a lot of bacteria, we could do that. But, um, and there are even some birds that do that in the tropics, the, a creature called a Hawatsin in South America. It has a big fermentation chamber and makes it very awkward for that bird to fly. It's a poor flyer, but, it's able to utilize poor, poor um, quality food, but we can't do that. Um, we can't even eat the diet that a chimp eats. You know, a chimp has a very much larger digestive tract relative to its body size than we do. But if we tried to get enough nutrition, you wouldn't be able to do your athletic events if you were eating the diet diet of a chimp, simply because you wouldn't be able to fuel your body. And they have to eat something like five, six, seven hours a day in order to get enough nutrition on that
0: low quality food yeah george you've highlighted a few things that i've been interested in recently, and one of them goes back to what you mentioned about the the, the children in India who are having the, the stunted growth or the forty percent zinc deficiency type of stuff and it you know a, f- a few years ago when I first kind of connected those dots or started thinking about this stuff I, it, I the the catalyst was more or less i was looking at um, I was looking at some food labels and I you know you notice like you look on the back of a bag of vegetables and you say see it has like x percentage of your daily value of this nutrient micronutrient and then uh after a while i realized that those aren't necessarily accurate not necessarily to the degree that there isn't that much of the micronutrient in those plant products but our body's ability to actually take those in and digest them rather than just pass it through is is quite low and then i noticed there's a pretty stark difference between like plant food and animal animal food uh, in terms of how well our bodies absorb or what percentage of that our bodies are going to absorb. So that was kind of the first kind of like aha moment in my mind about like well what are we really supposed to be eating in an ideal situation? And then I think if you go down that rabbit hole further and further you realize like we're we're kind of spoiled I guess more or less here in America because you know, you, you eat a bunch of these plant products that maybe bind to things and cause the nutrient absorption deficiencies and things, and you just supplement for it. And, you know, like that's not the case in some of these third world countries. They can't just go pick up a supplement. They can't just say, well, you know, I, I, I tarnished my zinc absorption by eating two pounds of spinach. Oh, I'll just take this supplement and that'll, that'll fix the problem. And, you know, I think that's like the perfect example of putting a bandaid on a situation rather than addressing the actual issue. I,
1: I couldn't agree more. And you're right on target with what is the, the nutrition if you were a chemist in a laboratory and you, you know, put these materials in a bomb calorimeter and measured the calories and measured the minerals that come out versus what are, is the human eating that stuff going to actually, what's the human able to absorb? And so plants have evolved multiple ways of preventing the animal that eats the plant from getting nutrition. So first, if the plant can repel the herbivore, that's, the plant is much better off, right? But then plants have evolved ways, even if an herbivore eats the tissue, the herbivore can't get nutrition. And so those animals are gonna be selected by evolution not to eat things they can't get nutrition from. So there's this whole, whole range of compounds called um, protease inhibitors. So these are compounds that inhibit the digestion uh, of protein by because we have to we have enzymes proteases that break down protein well if the the herbivore can't digest the proteins it's in, it has a problem there's also this category of things we call them tannins and related compounds and if you have a leather belt or leather shoes that's actually a piece of a dead animal okay now dead animals should decompose right but what we do as humans we take these chemical defense molecules called tannins out of plants and then treat leather with them. Those compounds bind to the proteins and they make the proteins undigestible. And so when an animal eats a plant with tannins, a lot of that protein, the animal will never be able to use it because that protein is is turned indigestible by binding with these tannins. And some plants have a significant proportion of their weight in tannins. That's one of the biggest ways many plants defend themselves against herbivores. Things like trees um, in the uh, oaks, for example, in the acorns, but also in the leaves. If you go to a swamp, I grew up in Virginia, and there were some swamps along the coast. If you look at the water in those swamps, the water is a dark brown. And that's because of all the tannins that have leached out of the leaves and bark and things that have fallen in the water. And they actually bind to the proteins and make things indigestible.
0: So definitely don't drink that water.
1: <laughs> Probably not. Even though it's interesting, in the old days of sailing ships, sea captains would get some of that water and carry it in barrels because of all the chemicals in there, the water wouldn't, get, it wouldn't go bad. And so you wouldn't get infections from it. It wasn't good for you, but it was better than being poisoned by bad water. So the tannins have some anti um, antimicrobial effects as well.
2: Hey George, let me uh, you know, because you said there's tens of thousands of compounds and plants, you know as an estimate we probably how many of those have actually been tested well let let's let's focus on the stuff we eat because we we eat you know. A, Well, most of us that eat plants eat a very limited supply. You know, there's only a few plants we eat as human beings typically. It's like corn and soy and sugar, and that's most of our diet. And we have a few oddball things. But what for people out there that are saying, well, I'm not going to go out there and chew on bark and eat grass and, you know, eat these philodendrons and stuff like that. It's not the normal human experience. For people living in modern grocery store stuff, how many compounds that we see day to day potentially can be problematic in even low doses? Can you discuss that to any degree? So I
1: like that question, Sean. And and so let me approach that from the standpoint of practicality and diet. So I grew up on a farm, and I like to be pretty practical about things. And, you know, what? It, if we're thinking about the average person who eats, say, I'm not talking about just a standard junk food diet, but if somebody is trying to eat in a healthy way um, – what kind of plant should they worry about? What are the, what's the low hanging fruit? What should you worry about first? And so for me kind of, I think the biggest thing, one of the most problematic plants is wheat. And that's because it has so many different defense compounds in there and so many different toxins. So, you know, the gluten in wheat is an obvious problem, but it goes beyond that. It's the, um, There are lectins in wheat, wheat germagglutinin is a serious one, and we know that causes problems in animals of various types, and we know it causes problems in humans. Um, Wheat also has oxalates, wheat has phytates. Um, So I would say in terms of one set of toxins are the things in wheat, that's a a really good one to remove from the diet. Most grains have a lot of toxins. Another set of things that I think people should probably avoid are the oxalates. I think that's one that, um, you know, spinach, for example, is a very high oxalate food. And some people on a paleo diet utilize a huge amount of almond flour and things like that. Almonds have a lot of oxalates. There are a variety of plants that have very high levels. There are a lot of plants that don't have high oxalates as well. So people can pick and choose. Spinach is kind of the poster child because it's one that gets people in trouble. I had a student years ago. This has been more than 20 years ago. She was a college student, 20, 21 years old. She'd had repeated bouts of kidney stones. And so her boyfriend knew me and he said, would you talk to her? Well, it turns out spinach was her favorite food. She was eating spinach several times a day. And so she was literally being poisoned by oxalates. For many people, if if their gut integrity is good and they have an attack microbiome, they may be able to deal with this, but she clearly couldn't. Some people can't. So, um, you know, gluten, wheat, gluten, the oxalates, another one are some of the lectins. Um, Again, depending on the individual person. This is, all of these things depend on um, the individual person, what's their genetics, what's their epigenetics, what's their microbiome, what's their gut integrity. But for some people, lectins, which are, a type of toxic protein and these um, can bind to our cell membranes. They, they're well known to damage the gut and I think um, for people who are sensitive, if somebody has some type of gut issue, looking to figure out which lectins might be worse for them, um, which lectins can be broken down most readily by wheat by, um, heat. Some lectins are not going to be a problem if they're mostly broken down, but many people are getting large amounts of lectins. So you know that's another category, um, another category that I think people should look at pretty carefully before they eat large amounts would be soy because of again the multitude of toxic chemicals. Soy has something called isoflavones, and these are hormone mimics. And again, depending on the person, we know that they can have effects in animals. There's no question about it. We've known since the 1940s that. Livestock can be seriously damaged in fact in some cases sterilized by plant isoflavones. Um, how bad is the uh, how bad are the isoflavones in soy in terms of changing our hormones i don 't know, but I expect for some people they may be significant and those same compounds can affect iodine usage and the thyroid they're called goitrogens and so again, if somebody has if their diet is replete with iodine, if they're eating seafood or something, in, or animal products, they're probably getting enough iodine. But if they're eating huge amounts of soy, where there are goitrogens, and there are other plants that have goitrogens as well, then that might compromise them. So I'd be careful with, um, I'd be particularly careful eating large amounts of something like soy, because of—and there's many other toxins, soy is just a playground of toxins.
0: Hey George, we actually uh, had a, a, a guy Elliot Overton and then uh, Sally Norton on the show a couple episodes ago, and we did kind of like a deep dive into oxalates. and And one thing Sally mentioned was that like oxalate poisoning is like this really broad spectrum as ter- in terms of like the individual is how it's going to really react. And she kind of just used smoothies as a comparison, like a spinach smoothie, and said, "Well, some people three- you know, really big pulverized spinach smoothies would be enough to create an issue. Whereas in other other people might be like 30 would be like a lethal dose. And like, I mean, that's like such a wide spectrum of tolerance, in my opinion, is that kind of what you're seeing with some of these other things too, where, you know, you, everyone kind of knows someone who, well, they eat bread all the time and have no issues with it, but then someone else has bread and they're like, kind of, they have like a stomach ache immediately. Uh, You know, like, if that's kind of the case, then I guess my thought is like, this is an individual journey for most people in, the, in a scenario like that, where like, if you're on that lower end of the tolerate of tolerance, whether that be genetically or for whatever reason, environmental influences on your, your gut biome, I guess, uh, you know, you just kind of have to see for yourself and decide or figure out what you can maybe get away with or not get away with. And for me, I think that just means like, I, I just tend to avoid that stuff then because uh, right. uh, it, it seems like it's a plan B at best at that point, I guess is what I'm saying. Right. So
1: I, I teach at a small college called Austin college. And so I actually, I'm teaching a course on this topic right now. So just before our podcast, I, I was teaching a class called environmental and evolutionary health. And one of the, one of the things that I really stress with them is that um, is this idea of bioindividuality? So we all have sensitivities, susceptibilities. I don't know what your susceptibilities are, for example, and I can't, I can't tell my students. We can kind of get a hint sometimes from what our family history is. Some people are very, very sensitive to carbohydrates, large amounts of carbohydrates in their diet. And they, you know, if they continue down a certain path, they'll probably become type two diabetics. But then some people are very sensitive to oxalates. I'm an example of that. I had kidney stones years ago. And so I avoid oxalates like they're, you know, the devil's spawn. I don't want anything to do with oxalates if I can help it. Um, and somebody else might be very sensitive to, say, the glycoalkaloids in members of the potato family. Um, Georgia Eads. Ead is another person who's done a lot of research on, int- very interesting work on plant toxins. And, and she makes a connection between some... Um, solanaceous, these are the nightshade toxins, particularly thing, those in, say, potato, and some um, neurological symptoms. Um, we, some people may be much more sensitive to that than others. So I, I totally agree with you. The problem is we often don't know what we individually are suffering from. And so one nice thing, you know, I, I know that you guys, um, from talking to Sean, I know that um, you're a really important part of the carnivore movement and from being at the conference. One thing about that as at least a trial is to, as an elimination diet. And then some people might be able to see, well, okay, I can eat these and they don't hurt me, but gosh, I just tried this and now I feel terrible once again. There are some people who are probably so sensitive that plants, they just can't deal with plants. Um, but there are other people who Probably have a particular sensitivity, and that might either be genetic or epigenetic or microbiome. It's hard to know.
2: Yeah, George. Um, yeah, I mean, I th- I agree with you. I think I think certainly, you know, eliminating these things completely and then seeing how you do with them later is is a, is a pretty sort of intelligent way to figure these things out. One of the things that I you know, when we talk about how these compounds have been tested. Uh, generally, my understanding is they look for acute uh, toxicity effects, you know, and they don't do much with regard you know, maybe they look at, you know, DNA damage to, to assess a cancer risk or, you know, DNA uh, w- w- uh, fragility or, you know, things like that. But they don't really, they're not testing them for does it cause depression in mice or does it cause joint pain in, in you know, sheep or stuff like that. I mean, I, I've not seen much in regards to chronic disease it's just because it's probably impractical to test those things. I think I would assume that most of these plant compounds that we even ingest on a regular basis have never been tested in those, against those chronic type of situations, or, or am I mistaken in that?
1: No, you're exactly right. Much of the plant toxin literature, in fact, there's a book, Toxic Plants of North America, and it was written by a, a botanist I know and a, a veterinary, um expert in veterinary medicine. They actually do tests for um, veterinary literature by um, putting animals on toxic plants, a certain amount in their food. So, you know, they find out what the lethal LD50 is, what does it take to actually kill them? And then they they do autopsies and look for organ damage. So they're looking for acute toxicity. What's going to, you know, kill the animal or debilitate the animal or cause the animal not to be able to gain weight. But they're not looking at Um, psychiatric problems in the animal. They're not looking at skin issues in the animal. They're not looking at this whole host of things and then long-term effects that we would see in people, particularly in people when they're eating huge amounts, something you said earlier, huge amounts of a few things. So, you know, if a human's getting 50% of their calories from um, wheat products, what is that doing to them? Um, Humans do not evolve to do that. Humans evolved eating probably um, large amounts of meat and a variety of plants. They would eat whatever they could get. They would eat seafood. They would eat, um, you know, humans would eat what they could get. We're, we evolved being omnivores, but probably eating as much animal products as we could. And what, that's what we see in native peoples. They try to get, if they can get the animal products, they'll, they'll eat it because of the high nutrient density.
2: George, there's a concept of this, this concept, which is actually recent. Most people don't know that, that phytonutrients... Uh, we didn't talk about phytonutrients 50 years ago because no one really called them. They call them chemicals, and so now we 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 say phytonutrients. But in honesty, there really isn't much in human physiology. I mean, we don't really have much use for, you know, tannins and oxalates and uh, polyphenols. I mean, we don't we don't it does it's not part of our physiology. We 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 detoxify those compounds, and sometimes it upregulates. Our defense systems, but beyond that, there's not a real use for that. Now, I guess the exception for that would might be something like uh, glucose, you know, fructose or glucose. But I mean, can you speak a little bit about the compatibility of, of these plant compounds in mammalian or even animal based cellular physiology, if you have any knowledge on that?
1: Well, most of them, you would certainly say um, the, the animals in general try to detoxify them. So, compounds, for example, in um, the the mustard family. So things like broccoli and cabbage and all of those. They have these compounds that are, they're sulfur containing compounds, glucosinolates. And the body though tries to deal with them very quickly. So the liver detoxes them and they utilize, ultimately in the detox, utilize glutathione to get rid of those things as quickly as possible. Now, the idea is that Some of this may benefit us through hormesis. That it's you know the same the idea is exercise. But um, you know if somebody's body is working properly, um, I can't see the point of putting in toxins for that reason. That doesn't seem like a good strategy because we know these things are toxic in animals. And um, it might have some beneficial effect, maybe at a very low level. But when you get to higher and higher levels, then that can overwhelm the detoxification pathways.
2: What is it, What is the difference between you know? Let, let's just use a cow for an example, uh, and and you or I, as far as dealing with these 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 toxins, because obviously, say they're eating a bunch of grass, which is, you know, it's difficult to digest because of the high cellulose content, but it's also got plant chemicals which would be toxic, I assume, and they have to deal with. And they and they eat more than grass; they eat shrubs and bushes and. Whatever they can get a hold of in the wild, and they've got to deal with it. Do they have a, a more robust cytochrome P four fifty fifty system, or or something like that, that would help them to deal with that at higher doses than we as humans have?
1: Well, they certainly have different detoxification pathways. But you can kill a cow with various things. Um, I, gr- as I mentioned, I grew up on a farm, and we had to be very careful with a certain kind of grass. My father would he called it sweet soot, it was a type of sudan grass, it was related to sorghum, and at a certain time of year, that would produce a cyanide compound, and you could not let cows eat large amounts of that. Likewise, cherry trees, a branch would fall out of a cherry tree during a storm, say in our pasture, you would have to get that up because when the leaves start withering, a compound in there, when breakdown process starts, cyanide is released, and you can poison a cow with these things, so, Every species basically has adapted to the kinds of things it's been eating. And so some creatures are much better at detoxifying some things than others. Um, an example, a very obvious example that comes to mind, you're probably familiar with it, um, things like caffeine and theobromine, which is in chocolate, are methylxanthines technically. And we can detoxify those things pretty easily. As was why some people are much better than others. Um, there's about a 40 fold difference. Some people are very sensitive to caffeine and don't, their detox pathway isn't quite as good because it's a P450 pathway. On the other hand, canines cannot detoxify those compounds hardly at all. That creates a real problem. Now, people say, well, I fed my dog chocolate, it doesn't do anything. Well, they probably gave their dog milk chocolate. If you feed a dog dark chocolate, you can actually kill the dog. Um, fairly easily because of this um, this poisoning and so that's a food that um, you know we can detoxify but a canine can't um, probably because we evolved as omnivores and we have better detox capacities for certain of those compounds but we can overwhelm our capacity you can have a fatal dose of caffeine it's about the amount of caffeine and somewhere depending on body size 80 to 100 cups of coffee can be a fatal dose in a human um, that's not likely to occur
2: yeah my, my understanding is caffeine is basically another insecticide you know it's that's why the plants produce it to, to kill insects but let's go back so i kind of touched on this question before i want to develop this so um you know from a, a calorie strategy as a human being you know let's say we're wild humans out in the out in the wilderness and you know obviously a big giant fatty animal is going to give us the most bang for our buck but then we go to plant foods and we say well, where am I going to get calories for, from because I don't know about vitamin c and vitamin a and vitamin whatever I don't know about minerals all I know about is I need calories I need to fuel myself like any other animal does and so leaves and leaves and stems pretty low yield I mean as far as they're high, high in fiber they're fairly pulpy they don't have much caloric uh, value but then we go to things like tubers which you know arguably back then were a little more fibrous than they are now or probably a lot more fibrous than they are now we've bred them to be more starchy. Uh, Also fruits, nuts, and seeds, which also tend to be higher in caloric value. What is a what is a plant's sort of interaction with mammals in that situation? Because we all hear about you know fruits are made sweet so they entice animals to eat them so that they'll they'll propagate their seeds. But is there any concern about toxins in fruit, you know, not, not, not to dis- disregard the fact that some people might eat too much sugar by overdosing on fruit, but what, what are the strategies that plants have there with fruits, nuts and seeds and, and, and even tubers particularly?
1: Okay, so um, it's another good question because plants have used very different strategies on their different organs. So if you are, if you, let's imagine plants don't think, but imagine you're thinking from the standpoint of a plant you're putting a lot of stored food into your seeds because a seed is the baby plant plus food in a waterproof package. And you're putting a lot of stored food in your underground storage organs. So it's, it might be a root or it might be a tuber. Um, and so those those organs, seeds or underground parts, tubers or roots, they often have high levels of toxins because those are storage tissues, and so the plant is going to be protecting them with toxins. On the other hand, fruits have evolved to attract, many fruits to attract animals to actually get the animal to eat it, but the seed inside of the fruit often is toxic. So let's take apple seeds. The, the apple seeds themselves have cyanide, and but the apple evolved to be eaten by a creature, and then the small seeds pass through the animal and get defecated away. So, um, But an apple also has toxins in it, but those toxins begin to degrade during the fruit ripening process. And so there are a lot of fruits that are simply inedible at one stage when they're, when they're not ripe and later are delicious. There's a, there's a tree in this ecosystem called a persimmon. In fact, it's widespread across the Eastern US. And I would take my students on field trips early in the fall and I'd have them taste an unripe persimmon. Well, it's one of the worst things you are ever put in your mouth. It's because of the plant protection compounds and it literally, it just makes your mouth kind of pucker. It's like you have a bunch of sand in your mouth. It's unbelievably bad. But once that fruit begins to ripen, those toxins start to break down and then a ripe persimmon is actually a very tasty thing. From the plant standpoint, that makes a lot of sense because, If a fruit is eaten before the seeds get ripe, before the seeds have uh, matured and have their hardened external coating, then if they're eaten, they're destroyed. But once they're ripe, they'll pass through the gut of the animal unaffected. So in general, fruits are less toxic than storage organs. Um, So like potatoes, for instance, have much higher levels of these alkaloids, these toxic alkaloids, solanine, for example, um, they have much higher levels of those toxic compounds than, say, a ripe tomato. And likewise, a ripe tomato has much less than an unripe tomato. So you have to think about why did these things evolve and how did the plants, um, which organs did the plants put their most um, chemical protection in? And kind of one other thing to add to that, there's this whole category of plant chemical defenses that are called induced defenses. So a plant gets damaged and then it starts ramping up the biochemical pathways to make more and more toxins. So an animal eats a plant and then that plant really starts to make more and more toxins and the plant becomes much better defended. It's a way of not having to waste resources until they're needed.
2: Yeah, I mean that's interesting. We we've seen sort of, you know, recent information about quote unquote plant intelligence, where, you know, they can hear the sound of a caterpillar or something along that lines. It'll start upregulating the production of these toxins, you know, in a response to the environment, which is kind of, uh, you know, I think fascinating for many people to hear.
1: And so they start upregulating the amount of toxin, but the plants can also do some very strange things. So. Let's say the caterpillar um, starts damaging a plant, certain compounds, volatile compounds, these are able to get out in the air and move around. These volatile compounds can act as a signal that will attract creatures that parasitize those caterpillars. So there are wasps that actually lay their eggs in a caterpillar and then kill the caterpillar. And so there's this whole area of plant defense now, we talk about semiochemicals these signaling chemicals. And so plants can actually emit these chemicals, and it's like they're calling in the cavalry as a way to bring in the uh, the enemy of my enemy and um, attack these creatures that are eating them. It's quite an, quite an ingenious little evolutionary twist.
0: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating how all these things kind of... I guess not necessarily work together, but work uh, in in enough of a system where no one completely eliminates the other. Uh, you know, and it, that I had a question back before when you were talking about just like ruminants and kind of their their feeding on wild grasses, and then them being some grasses that can potentially be toxic in in a large enough dose. And one thing I thought about, and this might be kind of a crazy person question, <laughs> but um, I was thinking about like just the symbiotic relationship between a wild grass and a ruminant and how they kind of feed into one another. Is there, like any, um, is there any reason to think that some of these wild grasses are actually preferring the ruminant to kind of prune them via nature like we would a garden or a fruit tree or something to try to increase its long-term health in order to kind of keep itself more, more strong and populated down the road? Or is that just a little bit of a reach. So,
1: that's not a crazy person question at all. In fact, <laughs> that is a very insightful question. So, let me answer it in this context. So, at my college, we have we're restoring some native prairie. And so, you know, prairies in this part of North America, Central North America evolved being with repeated fire and with large herds of bison. Okay? And if you have a prairie now, a modern prairie There's not going to be a fire, right, and there's no herds of bison. If you have a modern prairie and it's not grazed or the grass is not cut, the grass will actually smother itself and the grass plants, some of them will die. So the plants evolved in a setting where their tops were either burned off or eaten off repeatedly, and you put them in a modern context and that doesn't happen, they get in trouble. And they'll actually smother themselves because of so much old dead growth that light can't get down and cause new growth. So plants are actually, like grasses, better off to be eaten occasionally. You can't eat them repeatedly. You know, if a plant you can kill grasses by having putting cows in an enclosed pasture and eat them, and as soon as they grow back up, eat them again, and as soon as they grow back, eat them again. But in the natural setting, they need to have the tops of the plants um, eaten off or burned off. And pastoral peoples understand this. Um, if you go to Africa in the area where there are the Maasai, they actually intentionally set fire to the grasslands, to the savanna sometimes, to get that flush of, of new growth for their animals. And so you're right on target. Because they'd evolved that way for so long, they are, in a sense, dependent. The grasses are dependent on the animals. Um, and not just for th- that, but also for the action of the hooves, to um, reincorporate nutrients into the soil and break up the surface of the soil um, so that moisture can can infiltrate. So yeah plants plants, and animals in the natural setting need each other.
2: Yeah I think it's you know we're seeing that more and more the more guests we have on here just talking about that but it seems like so what you're saying is maybe some of these grasses prefer to, 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 to expand horizontally than vertically and, and maybe their strategy is you know, we get, we get wider rather than taller. And they, you know, they probably collapse under their own weight. They're not bamboo. I mean, I guess bamboo is a little different that they can grow like three feet a day, which is fascinating to me.
1: Right. That's a whole different thing. Yeah. Prairie grasses, turns out with prairie grasses though, they have a lot of their biomass underground. You know, their roots go probably deeper than their above ground parts are. And so they have a lot of their biomass underground. Um, but the above ground parts, you have to get rid of that because at the end of the year, it dies back. So our, all of our prairie is here in the season, that's dead tissue. And, in a, in a, you know, in a pre-modern setting, that would have burned. There would have been no question. It would have burned or it would have been eaten. And when large herds of animals came through, they would have just eaten everything. Um, and it wouldn't have, the, the biomass wouldn't have just collected and collected and collected.
0: Yeah, and you know, the, one of the reasons I thought of this was because I actually, I actually accidentally kind of ran an experiment a few years ago where I had a, my, my house in, in Sacramento when I was living there. I, I left part of the backyard just unattended to to see what the grass would do. Um, and I, I think people don't really realize how tall grass can grow when it's not mowed like on a weekly or biweekly timeframe. And I I mean, this, the section that I left un like untaken care of it, uh, it grew so much, it did exactly what you said. It literally doubled over on itself and then eventually dried out and, and was dead and I eventually went and took care of it. But it was really interesting to see that. Like when obviously um, I wasn't gonna let a fire start in my backyard and there were no ruminants out there to, to prune it and, and I didn't do it, then it just kind of ran its course and it, it wasn't ideal for that section of the backyard. So, like, when you remove that, that symbiotic relationship, it, it does seem to be, be detrimental long-term for the grass itself. Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage-breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show.
2: What are the, you know, I want to, you know, talk about because you you talked a little bit about uh Some of these interesting reactions we see in in animals and humans. Uh, One of those, you know, you touched on celery, and there's a, if I'm not mistaken, it's called a focal coumarin, which uh, maybe I'm mispronouncing that wrong. And that that has a a photosensitizing reaction where these celery workers get these horrible blistering rashes on their hands. And just from handling some of the food we eat, things like cashews, if we eat them unprocessed, you know, again, Absolutely. Cashews will kill us
1: so you 're talking about a, a category of things that are called photosensitizers, and these are things that make make an organism an animal, or a human sensitive to light and one of the one of the these furanocoumarins, these are molecules that um, they 're activated by UV light and they can actually insert in DNA molecules and they can f- cause a very bad photodermatitis, it's called. And so one of the interesting examples of it is what's sometimes called margarita dermatitis. So people will squeeze limes, and then they'll go out in the sun before washing their hands, and they get these phoranocoumarins on their hands. And then they are exposed in the sun, and the next day their hands will be swelled up. It's horrifying. People can have very, very bad reactions. And If the lime juice even runs down, for example, they spill some lime juice on their skin. And dermatologists know about this um, very well because they have to treat so many cases of it. Plants um, didn't evolve this to do it to us, obviously. They did it. They evolved it to affect animals. And some insects have figured out ways to get around this. So there are butterflies that have evolved ways to break down these phoranocumbrins. They actually use another kind of P450 enzyme to detoxify these furanocoumarins. Uh, on the other hand, there are some butterflies that have evolved behaviors where they'll, the butterfly larvae will wrap themselves up in leaves so that even if they have large amounts of these, it doesn't affect them because they're not exposed to the light. But here in Texas, we have a plant related to these that sheep eat, And if they eat it, they can develop something called big head because they get enough of this in their body and where then they have the capillaries in the skin that'll be sensitive, they'll be exposed to light and the sheep will, their heads will swell up, their lips, the um, udders on the animals sometimes, and the animals can really suffer. They can look really pitiful and really suffer by eating these compounds. And in the human case, celery if celery is particularly dangerous if it's infected with, say, a fungus. Because then, as we talked about earlier, the celery will upregulate its toxin production. You'll get more toxins. And so then, people who are handling the celery are very, um, you know, they're at risk. Um, There are also some wild plants. There's a thing called wild parsnip that's... um, That you can have this. And there are a number of plants. Some of them, um, people can get horrifying reactions due to this photodermatitis. And it's in a way it's similar, you know, there are some prescription drugs that cause photosensitivity. Uh, you would know much more about this than I do, but as I recall, tetracycline is one that can make you photosensitive.
2: Yeah, I, certainly there's a lot of drugs that have interesting interesting interactions. How many, um, I mean, I know there's one, like, like cassava is, is one. I think there's, you know, when we talk about Uh, poisonings from food worldwide. If I'm not mistaken, cassava is one of the most deadly or or more common ones that occurs. What's going on with cassava?
1: Right. So cassava is in a family called the euphorb family. It's related to things like poinsettias, and many of them have toxins. Um, Cassava, it turns out, is one of the most important sources of calories for poor people in the tropics. Um, I've I've eaten a lot of cassava myself when I was in Central and South America. It's often um, put in soups or served, um, you know, with meat, often in restaurants in um, Venezuela Brazil, places they'll, they'll serve you with cassava. It's kind of like a potato. The problem with um, cassava, though, the worst problems are in Africa, where you have children getting a large percentage of their calories from cassava. And, and the cassava that the farmers like to grow is called bitter cassava. And it's bitter because of these cyanide-producing compounds. They're called cyanogenic. And if you eat some cassava, um, it's, you're not going to get enough of these compounds to matter. But if you're getting most of your calories from it, then you're getting a lot of these cyanogenic compounds. And for kids whose bodies are developing, those cyanogenic compounds are goitrogens. And so you end up with kids getting very bad iodine deficiency, thyroid function getting compromised, and they can develop a condition called cretinism, where you have, um, the body doesn't develop properly, but also you don't have appropriate cognitive development. So this is a lifelong then disability, um, both physical and mental. And it happens to, unfortunately, many, many kids who simply um, are not getting enough, in this case, getting enough iodine. So if you could somehow supplement those kids' diets with iodine, for example, give them um, animal products, give them seafood, something like that, that would be um, much better. Or you could reduce the percentage of their diet of this this com- of this um, you know one food. Um, because sava eaten with in small amounts with other things probably has no effect on the average person, but in large amounts, as we've said, the dose makes the poison. It, it,
2: yeah, George, it seems like, um, you know, because we often hear about a balanced diet, and it may be just as much as anything, a balanced diet prevents you from overdosing on toxins from any one particular compound, particularly when we're talking about plant food. So, so in order to not be overexposed to certain toxins, we need to balance things out, and need a wide variety, and that's maybe, you know, just as much as people talk about getting your essential vitamins and minerals, which I would argue you can get exclusively from animal-based products, as we're demonstrating pretty easily, I think. So it's kind of interesting that, that that this whole concept around balanced diet may be, you know, prevent nutrient deficiencies, but also prevent toxicities from, from becoming, uh, you know, over, over, uh, over consumed.
1: I think you're exactly right. I think it's kind of fascinating that sometimes the advice we get or the reasons for advice we get may not be correct. So in this case, Simply preventing people from poisoning themselves by having huge amounts of one thing is probably good. But in the modern world, you know, I see it in my students. I'll go over, have lunch over at the college cafeteria, and I'll see what they're eating. And many of my students are eating um, the vast majority of their calories from a couple of things. They'll have some kind of wheat-based product, whether it's um, um, bread or cookies or pizza, which is mainly the bread in that case, and um, so they may be that, and they may be eating huge amounts of potatoes. They, you know, students love french fries, so I'll see these plates heaped with nothing but bread products and potatoes, and I'm thinking about, well, um, you're getting a lot of several particular toxins. Um, you're probably not doing yourself a favor, and of course, they're swigging that down with uh, large amounts of sugary beverages, which, um, kind of as the icing on the cake, in other words.
2: Yeah, I mean, no doubt we're all, uh, I mean, not all of us, but I mean, many of us spent a lot of time eating uh, just uh, a diet that was just abysmal from a nutrition standpoint, but also probably from, you know, again, concentrating certain problematic foods over and over again. Um, you know, and that goes back to something we talked about at the beginning. I think the vast majority of human calories come from, you know, when we talk about plant foods, it's like three or four, three or four plants. I think it's wheat, it's corn, it's soy, and then possibly sugar. I think that's the vast majority. Something like three-quarters of the plant food on the on the planet comes from those few compounds. And surely uh, you know, there's there's problems in those foods for for many people. And I think we see that not in acute toxicity, but but in this chronic you know, chronic poisoning of the metabolism of the mitochondria, or what else, whatever else we're seeing, and it's kind of interesting as, as we learn more and more about, you know, particularly mitochondrial physiology. I think that's kind of an interesting, maybe maybe some some more knowledge we we'll gained there.
1: You know, um, and one of the things, kind of to add to that, many of the nutritional problems seems to seem to be exacerbated in recent years, and I think. Part of that's due to this whole, what I like to call a synergistic effect. So um, now, our, much of our food supply, since it's um, commercially prepared processed foods, you're adding all these other chemicals to the food. So whether they're emulsifiers, which can have an effect on gut permeability, or um, preservatives, or various other food additives, when you add on those on top of a host of plant defense chemicals, now we've got this basically a witch's brew of things that we didn't evolve to eat, and and I like to think about this in the context um, uh, that I use with my students. I like to think of us as zoo humans, and so if you're a zookeeper, um, if you want your animals to be healthy, and particularly if you want your animals to be able to reproduce, you have to emulate their natural conditions, and the most important part of their natural conditions is their diet, and so. Humans are, um, nowadays, the average human is getting a diet that's remarkably different from what we evolved to deal with. So we evolved, um, you know, if you, if you look at the research of people like Mickey Bendor and a, and a whole host of people who've looked at how did humans evolve, large-brained humans have been eating meat, um, large amounts of meat, probably for the past 2 million years, if not longer. Um, and in the modern world, where you have, and they've been eating plants for a good while. But in the modern world, if you have humans eating mostly plant products chosen from a few species, high in toxins, you mix that in with all these chemicals, we are basically zoo animals and we're being tested. And we're finding out that, that we're not doing well as zoo animals. Many of us are, are um, having chronic diseases. Many, of, many people have fertility problems. There are all kinds of things. The zoo analogy, I think, takes us a ways. We could not take a lion, um, put it in captivity, and feed it hamburger buns and tofu burgers and expect it to be healthy. Nor could we put a zebra in captivity. If you put a zebra in captivity and fed it ribeye steaks, I know one of your favorites, if you can give a zebra anything but ribeye steaks, the zebra wouldn't do well. And but people don't seem to think about what is the evolutionarily appropriate thing. Um,
2: hey, hey George, let me, uh, I don't know if you can be, um, let me ask you a little bit, this is a little bit, maybe a different topic, but might be of interest to the listeners. So when you talk about plant evolution, you know, there's this process of natural selection that occurs over a period of, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of years. We recently are now at a point where we can modify and accelerate that process through things like GMO, uh, You know, inserting different different bacterial or or DNA strands in there to to change out certain properties. And one of the things we do is we try to make these crops pesticide pest resistant. And so we they they tend to upregulate some of the natural pesticides the plants produce, so they can they can be harder and they can withstand you know grasshoppers or whatever might want to eat them. Does that have an impact on its? function now in humans that we have these plants that have had their pesticides upregulated potentially?
1: Well, I think it potentially does. For example, I know research has been done trying to, in fact, adding um, lectin genes into plants that like corn and tomatoes that wouldn't have them. So like wheat germ germagglutinin, doing bio, you know, doing genetic modification and inserting genes into those plants to give them more resistance against pests. Now, What happens then when the human eats those? Well, that's not what they're concerned about. They're concerned about how do you keep the plants from being eaten while they're in the field? How do you reduce the amount of damage to get more of the crop? And so very little thought I think is given in those cases to, okay, how is this going to affect people? What percentage of the population might this be very detrimental to? So you're right. you know, the, the genetic modification thing is interesting because there are ecological concerns, but there could be health concerns if you put a particular toxin in a plant, somebody who is sensitive to that toxin may well be harmed. Um, but we're not testing all of these things. That's you know, just as you've said earlier, we don't test to see the long-term effects of some of these things the same way with these new plants. That we have engineered or or selected for we 're not testing what effects they have on humans
2: yeah it's interesting. I mean you know when we when we go to get a drug approved for market you know via the FDA, uh, there is f- i think fairly robust testing although some people argue that maybe that 's not as robust as it should be, but with you know some of these foods that we 've been eating for millennia, you know they were never really tested we didn 't really you know, I, I guess we kind of did the human experiment through population. But I mean, if you had to go back in and say we're going to approve uh, uh, oxalate for human consumption and had to run it through the FDA and say is this a safe compound, I would say that probably wouldn't pass the FDA. You know, I'm just I'm just wondering what your thoughts on because we don't really have a a real good regulatory agency to 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 test these compounds in foods. Just because they're because they're in foods and we assume that. Well, they're in food, so they must be natural, and therefore they must be good, and they can't hurt us. So um,
1: let's use wheat as an example. So we know that um, in the case of wheat, nearly one in a 100 people are severely injured by wheat. These are people with celiac disease, right? So there's, we know, rough estimate in the population, roughly one in a 100 people. Um, and they can ca- it can cause everything from, you know, um, malnutrition to ultimately death, if, and but autoimmune disease and a, a host of problems. What if we had a medicine that wanted to come to market, and that medicine was literally poisonous to one in a hundred people? Would that be approved? Well, you have to look at the cost benefit ratio. How much does it benefit? Maybe if that medicine would save a lot of people, it would be worth risking um, one person out of a hundred being poisoned. And we have some medicines, you Know a lot more this about this than I do. We have some medications, kind of last medicines of last resort that can that have a finite probability of causing severe organ damage, but it's the last chance the person has, right? Um, You know, we know some things will very high chance of shutting down kidney function, but they're approved. But in the case of some of these plants, um, there's no human requirement, say for wheat, and. What percentage of people are damaged by wheat? Well, we know it damages people with celiacs, but we know it damages a lot of other people as well. Those with um, wheat intolerance, gluten intolerance, or some other intolerance. What percentage of people are actually harmed? What percentage of people have their gut permeability harmed by gluten and wheat germagglutinin? I don't know. Um, Because nobody's tested. This is is viewed as kind of a sacred food. I mean, it's... um, viewed as kind of the staff of life, but we know that it's very, very harmful to some people. So it's, you know, what's the, but we also are faced with the problem of how do you feed a population as large as we have in the world today without using these cheap, basically cheap nutrient-poor foods?
2: Yeah, you would think you'd want to at least know, you know, the potential toxicity profiles for people that, that are interested, that that may know that, so they can choose or choose or not to eat that. And rather than just not having the information out there, because if it, you know, if it if if something affects twenty percent of the population negatively, um, that information should be easily accessible. Rather than you just have to do your own experiment and see see what happens.
1: You would you would certainly think so, but you know, unfortunately, this this kind of information doesn't trickle down. Even through the healthcare system. So, you know, something like 80% of kidney stones are oxalate-based kidney stones, you know, calcium oxalate. You would think every person who went in for a kidney stone, they would be told, you know, about oxalate foods, but not all of them are. Some practitioners will tell their patients. Others say, we don't know why you have some genetic um, condition or something. Well, it may or may not be genetic. It may be they're poisoning themselves, maybe their gut biome. So, I agree completely. We should analyze these things and say um, there are some harmful, po- possible harmful effects. We hear about these harmful effects, these supposed harmful effects, we hear about it all the time related, say, to animal products, but we don't hear about it related to plant products. And it's beyond me. Why? Because the, the animals did not evolve chemical defenses. There are very few animals on the planet with chemical defenses. There are few. There are Poison arrow frogs, for example, in South America. And if you can even poison yourself by handling these if you have a cut on your hand. But I don't think most people in the carnivore movement are going to be eating poison dart or poison arrow frogs. Um, whereas, probably the, the vast majority of the plants we eat do have plant toxins.
0: Yeah, I had a kind of follow up question with the toxin stuff, and just and even into the like the dosage type thing, where uh, because I think some people will listen and they'll think like, well, if there's a kind of a dosage line that I need to stay under, I just need to find out where that dosage line is and stay under that and avoid any acute situations. And then there's going to be the other side of the spectrum where people start thinking like, well, if this much is bad, any must be bad to some degree, or it's going to build up. And over time, it's going to accumulate. Uh, Do we know a whole lot about that versus like from some toxins to the other, like which ones are kind of ones that will essentially accumulate kind of like oxalates can, or is it more or less something of just kind of keeping it under that specific threshold and the body will do a good enough job of kind of cleaning things up afterwards?
1: I, I couldn't hear what you specifically ask, what chemical that you ask about.
0: Oh, I was just asking in general, like, is it like, do you see like a concern for like long-term toxicity, even for folks who are kind of keeping themselves underneath what would be like that, that lethal dosage? Uh, like, I guess where I, where I'm angling here is when we had uh, Sally Norton on the show talk about oxalate, she was saying like, you know, like, yeah, you can, you can, You can kill yourself by eating too much oxalate, Uh, but even if you're under that lethal dose, it does accumulate. And then, if you like stop eating it too quickly, your body will start kind of purging some of that that accumulation. Is that kind of the case with a lot of these toxins? No, I don't know
1: of I don't know of other toxins. Most toxins, most of the ones that we've been talking about, your body detoxifies and moves them out. So I think oxalates are a fairly unusual example of that. Um, And and also with oxalates, while I agree with Sally, and I know Sally and she's done great work, um, people have a great deal of variation in how their body handles oxalates. And so the amount that you might be able to handle versus the amount that I might be able to handle um, are very different. And also what you eat at the same time you're eating an oxalate food. So if you're eating something with a lot of calcium in it, it may bind to some of the oxalates and then it just be, go out through fecal material. Um, not all of it might be actually absorbed into your body. So, um, you know, it's, there are multiple levels. Uh, that's one of the problems with many of these um, plant toxins, um, how it's eaten, when it's eaten, what else it's eaten with, what's the, what's the status of your body at a particular time. But we can't know that about ourselves. I know that, um, students I've had and, and feedback that I've gotten from, you know, I wrote a book on this topic and people will say, you know, I haven't had good digestion for years and I stopped eating wheat for one week and my digestion was much better. Well, they didn't know they were sick necessarily. They didn't know. They just thought their body worked that way. And, um, I have a feeling that for different people, the same thing nightshades might be that way. Georgia Ede, um, talked about this, has written about this at some length. Um, it's not that those compounds are being stored because they're broken down. We know the pathways by which they're broken down. But if you're getting small amounts all the time, you may have, in essence, a chronic condition even though you're just adding more and more and more at a slow level each, each day. You break what you had down, but then you're,
0: you never really get over your, um, never really get over the negative effects because you get another dose. Sure. So like the input is much bigger than the output in that case, I guess. Right. Exactly. Um, Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, the point you brought up about there being a relative dearth of toxins and animal products, you know, and, and other than these poisonous frogs and puffer fishes and I guess snake venom and stuff like that. But in general, you can eat their flesh and you're okay Just don't lick the frogs. Um, but then they talk about the fact that you know high heat cooking well sorry high heat cooking will induce uh, things like hydrocyclic amines or polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and those very same things are detoxified by the same pathways by which plant compounds are detoxified and yet we hear all this hullabaloo about high dose hcas and, and you know PAHs, is uh, trying to demonize them to tell you not to eat meat but but this exact same thing happens. It's a hormetic effect. It's a detoxification system that works for supposedly great for plants. Uh, but when we, when we, when we put meat compounds through the same thing, the, 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 the narrative changes tremendously. Whereas we, we say these meats are awful for us to eat because of these compounds, which we detoxify and maybe they have a hormetic effect, but if it comes from a plant, it's got to be good. And I just find that an interesting uh, sort of, you know, bias we see in the, in the literature.
1: Absolutely. And yeah, I, I, like, I like that you brought that up because, and also the same thing with prescription medicines. So many of, the, many of our medicines are broken down by the very same liver enzymes of P450s that break down other toxins. And so, um, and that, that brings up another example, even something as most people would think benign is grapefruit. Um, We now know of drug contraindications, prescription drug contraindications with um, more than 80 drugs when consuming grapefruit because it competes for the same detox pathways. So um, if a detox pathway, um, if we think, well, it doesn't hurt the detox pathway if we eat plants, if it doesn't hurt detox pathways with prescription medications, why do we want to demonize the meat if we have to use a detox pathway to break down a particular thing? Um, It doesn't make sense, but I think it's, if somebody doesn't want to understand something, then they're not going to understand it. That's, and it's one of the things I have to tell my students, um, for a scientist, I think the most important thing for a scientist is being able to admit you're wrong and changing your mind. And, you know, we've learned a lot more about plant toxins in the past few years than we knew before. I used to be more concerned, for instance, about tannins. With The amount of tannins humans get in their diet, from the best I can tell now, most of us are not going to have any problems with tannins, um, the average person. Um, and I used to think that was more of a problem. And I admit, I was wrong on that. I've been wrong on a lot of things. I've been a biologist for about 40 years. I've seen our field change tremendously. And I think we're going to see in the future... Um, some of the, view, the current views on plant toxins, where, well, they're not a problem, et cetera, et cetera. I think we're going to see that change because we're learning more and more. Um, your movement is an example of this. Many people realize that plant toxins have been compromising their health. And um, I think we're in the future, we're going to see this more and more. And the best scientists, you'll be able to say, you know, I've got more evidence. Um, I'm going to have to change my mind about that. Because if you can't change your mind, you're not acting like a scientist.
2: I think that's a great sentiment to, to kind of close on, George. I mean, I think that is that, that points it out. You know, you become... Uh, Rather than a scientist, you become a religious uh, person. And uh, I, I think that's great. And I've said more times, and I've said this many times, the only thing I'm 100% certain about is that I'm wrong about something. And, I, you know, we'll find out what those are and, and, and you know, hopefully make the changes accordingly. And I think that's the way we should all be. But thank you so much, George. Where can folks find out about you, your work, your books, uh, how to get a hold of you if they want to discuss more of this stuff? Because I think it's really neat stuff. We've got later today, we've got an entomologist coming on. So we've got a kind of a, a, uh, you know, a wide variety of different, different aspects but I mean, this has been fun talking to about plant evolution and biology and, and toxicology and stuff.
1: Well, I guess there aren't many people with my name, George Diggs, but if you just type in go to Google, type in George Diggs and I, I teach at a college called Austin College. And if you type in that, my webpage will pop up. I have a personal webpage and then an official college webpage, and I have links from those to a variety of things. So, um, it's certainly been a pleasure being with you.
2: What was, what was the name of the book you wrote, George? Just so oh. in case anybody wants to look that up. I co-authored
1: it with my colleague and um, Carrie Brock. The name is called The Hunter-Gatherer Within Health and the Natural Human Diet. And the reason we, we wrote it was so that we'd have a book to use in our classes. We were teaching this material and there was just no book. And so we wrote that. It was, it was written for, and it's written at a level that's accessible for college students. So the, you go to amazon it's just the hunter
0: gatherer within awesome well george we will definitely link all that stuff to the show notes so the listeners can click through and uh you know definitely check the book out uh as well as your websites but like like sean said thank you so much for giving us some time and sharing sharing everything you know about uh about plants (laughs) zach it's been a pleasure thank you hey folks human performance outliers podcast is growing And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.